Welcome to Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces. I'm your host, Cassiopeia. You can find new episodes every Friday on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and Facebook for all future updates at creepycases.spookyspaces. Due to the nature of this show, some of the details can get pretty graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Spookies, creatures of the night, creepers, spooky creeps, creepy spooks, whatever you identify as. When I first started this podcast, first of all, actually, when I first started this podcast, I did not realize there would actually be so much interest um, in it. I know I love doing the podcast. And um, I wanted to say thank you so much for all of the support. I'm actually having a blast doing this. So if you love creepy cases and spooky spaces as much as I love making creepy cases and spooky spaces, well, I don't make them, I just talk about them. Um, Feel free to share um, on Facebook and Instagram. write a review on Facebook, you can actually do that. I think you can actually write reviews on certain podcast platforms. So that would actually be greatly appreciated because that actually helps spread the word and get the podcast some attention. Um, Also, don't forget, we do have the Patreon and we have subscriptions going that you can um, partake in. And there's a couple little thank you goodies on there for the support. Also, the creepy cases spooky can creepy cases spooky spaces candles are still up for sale over at pizzaandpigtails.com just click on the wiccan face shop link and they are on that page but um but yeah so thanks so much for the support but um i kind of lost my point there got off track but when i first started the podcast I actually did not plan or have any idea that episode number 31, which is the episode that I am recording right now, it's actually falling on Halloween. Um, Well, Halloween weekend, because I'll be posting this on Friday, Halloween's on Sunday. But um, it's just, uh, I like finding little universe synchronicities like that, and I just thought it was a cool one because Halloween is actually my favorite holiday. So, let's get started on this episode. I uh, wanted to do something a little different. I don't want to use the word special because I don't know if that sounds disrespectful to the victims or the cases or anything like that, but um, I celebrate Halloween a little differently because I am actually a real-life witch and... um, But I also like to partake in the mainstream celebrations as well. Um, I'm a little old to be going trick-or-treating, and I don't actually get too many kids that come to the house here, but I do like to do the scary movies and the creepy stuff, and it's just so much fun. 
So let's get started on our Halloween episode. So Halloween, for the most part, is a fun day of the year where everyone can get dressed up as their favorite characters, as their heroes, and they go out, kids go out trick-or-treating, and the adults go out to parties, and you just, one of those days where you can just let loose and be yourself, or you can be someone else, basically whoever you want. But there is a dark side to Halloween. Countless murders have been committed, and I actually wanted to take some time to talk about three of them. And so this episode isn't a deep dive into the creepy cases that I usually do. These were some of the creepiest cases that actually happened on Halloween. When the scariest monsters are real. And I will say that the details of some of these cases are slightly on the gruesome and very dark and uh, just pretty gruesome. So listener discretion is advised. Um, The first two cases aren't horribly graphic, but the third case is, so if you, I don't want to say are faint of heart, but if you are a little more on the fidgety side when it comes to describing murders, assault, abuse, things like that, I would probably skip the third episode. If there are little ears, uh, parents, you may want to listen to it first before letting the little ones listen to it. Let's get started. Our first case starts, and it's actually, if not the most well-known case that happened on Halloween, it is definitely high up on the list. Every parent and child has heard the warning, be sure to check your Halloween candy before eating it. While the world is quite a scary place, and there are quite a few weirdos out there, it's always been regarded as an urban legend, and there's actually not really as many people tampering with candy as you would think. But as I've said before, and I'm pretty sure you guys are actually tired of hearing it, there is always, always some spark of truth behind every local legend and story that gets passed on throughout the years. And this one started on a stormy night in 1974. Ronald Clark O'Brien lived in Deer Park, Texas with his wife, Danine, and their two children, eight-year-old Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth. Now, Ronald worked as an optician 
and served as a deacon at his church, where he sang in the choir. And friends and neighbors described him as a model citizen, a good Christian man, and an above-average father. Which, I'd kind of like to know what the standards for above-average father were, or are. Um, But of course, we never really know what goes on behind closed doors. And in this case, looks were quite deceiving. Ronald actually had difficulty keeping a job, and over a 10-year period, he had actually been fired from 21 different employers, most citing negligence or fraudulent behavior. He was at risk of losing his most recent one as his employer suspected him of theft. Despite the rain that Halloween night, he took Timothy and Elizabeth trick-or-treating because, come on, it's tradition. And along with them for the night was their neighbor, Jim Bates, and his young son. Now, they went up to a house and the lights were off, but they decided to knock anyway because the kids were excited and they, you know, maybe the neighbors just forgot to turn on the lights. And who's going to pass up any chance at extra candy? But after knocking and getting no answer, the group assumed that, okay, maybe no one was home. And the kids ran off to find another house with Jim quickly in tow leaving Ronald behind. When he rejoined the group a few minutes later, Ronald surprised the children with tubes of pixie sticks, claiming someone had actually opened the door just as everyone else had dashed off, and luckily he had been able to see them, and he scored. The kids each took a tube of the tart candy, one for Timothy and Elizabeth, one for Jim's son and his other son who hadn't joined them, and then they actually gave one to a young boy that they had recognized from church while they were on their way home from trick-or-treating. Right before bedtime, Ronald let each child choose one piece of candy, and Timothy opted for the pixie sticks. After pouring the candy into his mouth, Timothy complained that it didn't taste right, and it actually had kind of a bitter taste to it. And Ronald gave him a glass of Kool-Aid to wash it down. Not even a minute later, Timothy called out to his father that his stomach hurt. Ronald found Timothy convulsing, vomiting, and gasping on the bathroom floor, where he suddenly went limp. Timothy was rushed to the hospital, but died on the way, less than an hour after eating the candy. When his body was brought to the morgue, the medical examiner noticed that his breath smelled of almonds. Harris County Prosecutor Mike Hinton was called that evening and told that an eight-year-old boy had died. He wanted to get an investigation started immediately, calling Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Joseph A. 
Yankumchik, who asked what Timothy's breath smelled like. And he was told immediately that it was smelled of almonds. And he responded that it was cyanide poisoning. An autopsy performed later confirmed that Timothy had ingested enough cyanide to kill two or three grown men. Tests also found that the top two inches of the pixie sticks were nothing but the poison. Investigators were able to retrieve the other pixie sticks. Luckily, the other children had not eaten them. They were also packed with cyanide, and the person responsible had cut the tops off, filled the candy with the poison, and then stapled the tops back together. This saved the other child's life. The boy that they knew from church was found in bed with the treat in his hand, but he wasn't strong enough to pull the staples apart. And that's terrifying. Police had O'Brien and Bates retrace their steps from Halloween. O'Brien kept giving conflicting information as to which house gave him the candy. After becoming suspicious, they also learned of his financial problems. Debt of $100,000, and he was barely covering his bills on his weekly pay. He also recently took out insurance policies on both of his children, and I believe the amount totaled around $60,000. With this new information and possible motive in mind, police began to dig deeper into Ronald O'Brien, who was still being rather aloof on his details, and they decided to get firm with him, taking him back out to the neighborhood and having him show them which house gave him the candy. He pointed out a house, but stated that he didn't see who exactly gave him the candy. Police then arrested the owner of the home at his place of work in front of all of his co-workers. I can only imagine how embarrassing that must have been, especially because they, they're not discreet. Um, but the man had an alibi. He was at work that evening. His wife and daughter were home, but they ran out of candy, so they turned the lights off early. This was confirmed by colleagues and timesheets. And this only made police even more suspicious of Ronald. Hinton said he knew something strange was going on, especially when it came to light that he had written a song about how Timothy was going to heaven to meet Jesus. None of his family wanted to stay up and watch it on the evening of the funeral, and it made Ronald angry. So I guess it wasn't so much that he wrote this song because if he was, you know, in the, a deacon of the church, maybe it would be a nice tribute. But the fact that he got angry that nobody wanted to listen to his song kind of raised a red flag. And after failing a polygraph, Ronald was arrested and charged on November 5th, 1974. He maintained his innocence, but on June 3rd, 1975, he was found guilty. Appealing his case twice, he was found guilty each time. 
because where else would that candy have come from? Ronald Clark O'Brien was executed on March 31st, 1984. And he was originally supposed to be executed by electric chair, but by then Texas had um, ruled against the electric chair. So it was actually lethal injection. Our next case will begin right after a few words from our sponsors. So our next case actually focuses a little more on the investigation than it does the actual murder as there's not really much known about what happened. This is the case of Martha Moxley, a case that initially had a closed status with a suspect charged and behind bars until an appeal saw him released. And in 2020, they ruled that they would not retry him. On the evening of October 30th, 1975, 15-year-old Martha Moxley left with friends to participate in Mischief Night. Now, Mischief Night is where the neighborhood kids get together and go around the neighborhood playing pranks, doing a little ding-dong ditch, and toilet paper in houses. You know, a typical teenage fun night out. And according to friends, Martha had begun flirting with Thomas Skakel and even ended up kissing him. And she was last seen, quote, falling together behind the fence, end quote, with Thomas near the pool in the Skakel backyard around 9.30 p.m. The next day, Martha's body was found under a tree in her own backyard. Her pants and underwear had been pulled down, but reports show that she had not been sexually assaulted. Pieces of a broken six iron golf club were found near the body. Autopsy concluded that she had been bludgeoned and stabbed in the neck with the golf club, which ended up being traced back to the Skakel residence, but not until nearly two years later. Now, in 1977, Thomas Skakel and another unnamed teenager are considered suspects, but they both passed lie detector tests. And even though Thomas was the last person seen with Martha, Kenneth Littleton, a live-in tutor, was also a prime suspect, but he was ruled out at the time as well. Now, Michael Skakel, Thomas's younger brother, who was also 15 at the time, attended the Avon School in Poland Spring, Maine. And this is a private institution that specializes um, with children of mental health and substance abuse problems. And two former students actually claim that Michael said he murdered Martha during a group therapy session 
But Joe Ritchie, the owner, denies that he ever confessed to this. And these two students claim that Michael was given um, I guess you could say he was given priority and he even said that he was going to get away with murder because he was a Kennedy. And it's true, Michael Skakel is the nephew of Robert F. Kennedy. Now over the years, both Thomas and Michael actually changed their stories quite a bit. At first, Michael had said that he came home and was in for the night. Then he said that he was peeping into windows and masturbating in a tree outside of Martha's window. At this point, the case just goes cold. There's no leads, nothing adds up, there's no real evidence besides this golf club. But just because they traced it back to the household, they really couldn't trace it to one person. But in 1991, William Kennedy was tried and acquitted on rape. And at this time, a rumor starts that he was present and involved in Martha's murder. Now, keep in mind, Martha was murdered in 1975. They did a little bit of an investigation in 1977, and now it's 1991, and they're just now bringing attention back to the case. But it goes cold once again. Till June of 1998, seven years later, a book written by Mark Fuhrman, a former Los Angeles police detective who points to Michael as the likely and most obvious killer. Now, this awakens the attention around the case, and even before this book, Greenwich detectives had become convinced that Michael was the killer, they just didn't have any evidence. Now, around August 1998, that live-in tutor, Kenneth Littleton, testifies in exchange for immunity, and investigators focus on Thomas and Michael, but both deny involvement. Now, around this same time, Mildred Ix speaks to the grand jury, as her daughter Helen, who was also 15, was with Martha, Thomas, and Michael on the night of Martha's murder. Now, I'm not sure, because I couldn't really find in my research what exactly was said, but it was enough to kind of spark and keep the attention on Michael and Thomas and the Skakel family. Joe Ritchie refuses to testify. On January 9th, 2000, an arrest warrant is issued, and Michael Skakel surrenders that same day but he's released on a $500,000 bail. A few months later, on March 14th, he's arraigned for murder in the juvenile court, since he was only 15 at the time of the murder. But in 2001, a judge rules that he'll be tried as an adult because a juvenile court doesn't really have the means to more or less punish an adult. 
When he was first interviewed, let's remind, he claimed that he went to his cousin Jimmy Terrian's house around 9.15 and returned at 11 o'clock. However, in another interview, Michael says he came home, climbed a tree outside Martha's window, and masturbated. Except the tree he described wasn't outside Martha's window, and it was the tree that Martha was found beneath. In June 2002, during his trial, there was no direct evidence leaking Michael to the murder, but the testimonies about his statements and his erratic behavior that followed, I guess you could say, maybe swayed the jury a little bit. His trial ended in 2002, in August, and he was convicted, and a guilty verdict came with a sentence of 20 years to life. During his sentence, or I guess right before, he gave a 10-minute speech proclaiming his innocence and how his faith in God will set him free. November of 2003, Michael's lawyers challenged the conviction, stating the prosecution, calling him a spoiled brat, gave an improper impression to the jury and swayed them, and that he also shouldn't have been tried as an adult to begin with. 2006, appeals court reject an appeal by Skakel's lawyers. And it seems nothing really happened again until October 2013. A Connecticut judge orders a new trial for Skakel, saying that his original lawyer didn't represent him effectively. November 2013, after more than 10 years in prison, Michael is set free on a $1.2 million bail. In 2016, Skakel's lawyer states that he deserves a retrial and even claims that Thomas is most likely guilty of the murder of Martha, not Michael. State prosecutors say that he doesn't deserve a retrial and his conviction should be reinstated. And there's a lot of just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And in July, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. released a book stating that a botched investigation, misconduct by the prosecutors, and he spent, caused Michael to spend years behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. And it even offers different theories as to who murdered Martha, even offering up two people who weren't even from the area. In December of 2016, Connecticut Supreme Court reinstates Michael's murder conviction. And they claim that his legal, his legal representation was competent. Then again, in 2018, Connecticut Supreme Court actually reverses itself and vacates the murder conviction and states that a retrial is possible. But on October 30th, 2020, Michael Skakel is free based on the claim that there's just not enough evidence to try him again. Dorothy Moxley, Martha's mother, still believes that Michael is the killer, but she says that she doesn't need for him to spend any more time in prison. Now, 
there are journal entries about Thomas and Michael from Martha about how there was an argument between her and Michael. I think it was either a day or two before she was murdered. And now while these journal entries were actually presented during the trial, the judge said that they are just hearsay and they're not actual proof of anything that to be taken into consideration. And cases like this kind of frustrate me because it's I mean, his, all of his statements of, I'm a Kennedy, and I'm going to get away with murder, and I murdered her. Now, when you have multiple people who are claiming that he said this, and then you have one person who refuses to testify instead of just saying, no, he never said that. It just seems a little, it does seem a little fishy to me um but I would love to hear um anybody in the area who might know a little bit more about the case who may have been around at that time or know somebody who was around at that time or you know just have heard things I'd love to hear um if you think it was Michael Skakel Our final case will begin after a word from our sponsors. Shh, do you smell that? The fairies must be whipping up something new over at the Wiccan Fay Candle Nook. The new layered candles are a must-have for any candle lover. You can choose from three scents to create your very own garden soiree or Sunday yummy Sunday. And the options don't stop there. With a wide variety of scent profiles and fun names like Bitch Slap Blue and Chill the Fuck Out, you're bound to find something for everyone. Right now, if you mention the discount code CREEPYSPOOKY at checkout, you can get 10% off your first order. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to pizzaandpigtails.com, click the link in the left-hand corner, and get your hands on your very own Wiccan Fay candle. Hey, Central Florida dessert lovers both local and visiting. Are you in need of a cake or a variety of goodies for an upcoming birthday, anniversary, or just because you're an adult and don't need a reason to treat yourself every now and then? The team over at Storybook Delights is ready to accommodate all of your sweet treat needs. Ashley, Stephen, and their little man Lucas who, by the way, is actually a super fan of creepy cases and spooky spaces, are ready to go with a wide variety of treats, from cakes to cupcakes to cookies to cake pops and so much more. And right now, during the spooky season, they have so many awesome, awesome offerings, like their Storybook Nightmare Treat Box with Nightmare Before Christmas cake pops, Booty You Pretzels, Haunted Mansion cookies, 
serial killer cupcakes, and spooky chocolate-covered strawberries. And the best part is all items are 100% custom. So you can get any item themed to any, anything you want. <laughs> it's almost too good to be true. And with delivery to the Disney resorts, Universal resorts, and to your own front door, how can you not? And right now, if you mention creepy cases with and spooky spaces with Cassiopeia, you get a free half dozen order of cake pops added to your order. So head over to Facebook or Instagram, look up Storybook Delights, get those orders in now. And I have to say, as someone who has tried quite a few of Ashley's delicious creations, you can't go wrong. Go now, get those orders in. Our final case is a look into Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, also known as the Toolbox Killers. In this case, actually, the details are quite graphic. They are very gruesome. Um, it talks about rape, kidnapping, murder, um, sexual assault. So I definitely, definitely push the listener discretion advisory, um, but let's get started. Their spree of rape, torture, and murder spanned over a period of five months in 1979, and the reason I picked this case as one to highlight is that their final murder fell on Halloween. A little bit about them is Lawrence Bittaker was born 1940 as an unwanted child by a couple who decided that they didn't want to have children. He was placed in an orphanage and adopted as an infant by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker. The family moved around a lot while Lawrence was a child and with a record starting at the age of 12 he dropped out of high school and was arrested for theft of a car hit and run, and evading arrest. He was imprisoned at the California Youth Authority, and upon his release, he found that his adoptive parents had actually disowned him and moved to another state. He'd never see them again. Roy Norris was born in 1948 to unwed parents who ended up marrying to avoid the social stigma of having a child out of wedlock. His father worked in a scrapyard, and his mother was a drug-addicted housewife. He was in and out of foster homes throughout his childhood. He was neglected basic needs such as food and clothing, and he was even sexually abused by one of the families he stayed with. At age 16, he stole his father's car, drove to the mountains, and tried to commit suicide. But in February of 1979, Roy and Lawrence met at a hotel to discuss their plan to begin kidnapping and raping girls. In order to do so, they decided to purchase a silver gray 1977 GMC Vandura. 
now seriously think child molester in all the joke vans it's the large kind of utility vehicle um, it's windowless on one side and has the large sliding door on the other um, just they nicknamed it the murder Mac between February and June of 1979 the two did practice runs where they would pick up over 20 female hitchhikers but they didn't assault these women they actually used them as practice to lure women into the van and as a way to find secluded areas on june 24th 1979 they killed their first victim 16 year old lucinda lynn schaefer also before i continue um all of the victims in this case are under the age are underage they're all minors i believe there might be one 18 year old but in my eyes that is still that is that is still a very that's a child no offense to anybody who's 18 but that is that is a child now lucinda was last seen leaving a church meeting in redondo beach Bittaker said that he and Norris had just finished setting up the van, complete with a bed, and under this bed were tools, clothes, and a cooler filled with beer and soft drinks. And around 11, 11 a.m., they drove to the beach. At 7.46 p.m., they spotted Lucinda. After an unsuccessful attempt at luring her with drugs, they drove a little further down the road. Norris got out of the van opened the sliding door and waiting and waited for her to walk by. This is where he grabbed her and threw her into the van. Bittaker turned the radio up as Norris bound and gagged Lucinda on the way to the secluded area they had found. They said she displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. That's an actual statement by, by the murderers. At the road, Norris raped Lucinda while Bittaker took a walk. When he returned, he raped her as well. She asked if they were going to kill her, and they told her no. And she said that if that was their plan, all she would like was a moment to pray. Of course, they both gave differing accounts as to whose idea it was to kill her after they argued whether they should release her or not. Norris began to strangle Lucinda, but became quite disturbed by the look in her eyes. He gave up, exited the van, and began to vomit. Bittaker strangled her with his hands until she collapsed and began to convulse. He then wrapped a wire hanger around her neck and held it with pliers until she finally died. Lucinda's body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon. According to Norris, Bittaker stated the animals would eat her up and there would be no evidence left. 
Two weeks later, on July 8th, they found 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. As they slowed down to offer her a ride, another car stopped and she accepted from them, causing the duo to follow behind until Andrea hopped out at Redondo Beach. Norris hid in the back of the van to make it appear as if Bideker was traveling alone. When he offered her a cold drink from the cooler, upon reaching in, Norris grabbed her, subdued her, twisting her arm behind her back. He gagged her with tape and then bound her wrists and ankles. They drove to the same location they took Lucinda, where she was raped twice by Bideker and once by Norris. Norris thought he saw an approaching vehicle, and Bideker grabbed Andrea and drug her into the bushes while Norris looked for the car. When he returned, they drove her to a second location where they took Polaroid photos and made her walk uphill naked and then perform oral sex on Bideker. Norris drove to a nearby store to buy alcohol, and when he returned, Bideker was alone. But he had photos of Andrea begging for her life with a look of sheer terror. He said he told Andrea he was going to kill her and told her to give him as many reasons why he shouldn't. He then jammed an ice pick into her ear, straight into her brain. He then turned her body over and thrust the pick into her other ear, stomping on it until the handle broke. He then strangled her and tossed her body off the cliff. On September 3rd, Jackie Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamp were hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. Bideker and Norris found them at a bus stop near Hermosa Beach and they offered them a ride. Shortly after realizing that they turned off the highway, the girls began to protest. And not buying any of the excuses given, 13-year-old Lamp tried to flee the van. Norris knocked her unconscious with a bag full of weights. And as he began to bind and gag 15-year-old Jackie, Lamp actually became conscious again and tried to flee but Norris grabbed her and began dragging her back. Because there were witnesses who could see what was going on, Bideker punched Gilliam and helped Norris finish binding and gagging the two girls. They then drove to the San Gabriel Mountains, where they held the girls hostage for almost two days. They suffered physical and sexual abuse while their captors actually slept in the same bed beside them, taking turns to keep watch. Bideker walked Lamp onto a nearby hill, forcing her to pose for Polaroids before letting her return to the van. Bideker had Norris take photos of him and Gilliam, both naked and clothed, clothed, and in one instance, While raping her, he created a recording where he forced her to pretend that she was his cousin and to be as vocal as she could about her pain. Bideker also stabbed Gilliam in in her breasts with an ice pick and used vice grip pliers to tear off part of one nipple. 
Upon murdering the girls, Norris suggested that Gilliam be killed quickly because she was cooperative, unlike Lamp. But Bittaker said, quote, No, they only die once anyway. Struck her in the ear with an ice pick, and then strangled her. Lamp was forced out of the van, and Norris struck her with a sledgehammer. Bittaker then strangled her until he thought she was dead, but when she opened her eyes, they bludgeoned her to death with the sledgehammer. Sixteen-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford was abducted on October 31, 1979, from a gas station in Sunland to Tayunga. I'm sorry if I butchered that. She recognized Bideker as a regular from the restaurant she worked at, so when he offered her a ride, she accepted. They drove to a secluded street where Norris drew a knife and then bound and gagged Shirley. Bideker and Norris traded places, and Norris drove around for an hour. Bideker tortured Shirley, slapping her, mimicking her, telling her to scream as loudly as she wished, and he struck her with a hammer, raped her, and sodomized her. He then switched places with Norris, who told her to scream or he would make her scream, to which she replied, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. He then reached for the sledgehammer, striking her on the left elbow. And what I didn't mention prior is they recorded the entire thing. And she can be heard telling him that he broke her arm. He then struck her 25 times on the same elbow and asked, what are you sniveling about as she screamed and cried? After almost two hours of torture, Shirley was killed by Norris strangling her with a wire coat hanger held tight with pliers. They discarded her body in a yard, most likely to be found and to get attention. Shirley's body was found the next morning by a jogger. She died of strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to the head, face, breasts, and elbow. Her genitalia had been torn. In November of 1979, Norris met up with an old friend, Joseph Jackson, who he confided all of the crimes he and Bideker had committed. After speaking to his lawyer, Jackson was advised to inform authorities. Investigators noted that the confession matched with all of the missing persons reports of the young teenage girls. On November 20th, both men, if you can call them that, were arrested after finding the Polaroids in Bideker's apartment and the sledgehammer and weights in the van, along with many, many other items that they used to torture and kill their victims. They knew that they had their suspects. November 30th, Norris denied all involvement until confronted with the evidence, and he then pointed out that Bideker was more capable, culpable, than he was. They never found the bodies of Schaefer, 
or in February of 1980 Norris gave a plea deal to testify in exchange for no death penalty both men were officially charged on May 7, 1980 Norris was sentenced to 45 years with parole eligibility in 2010. April 24th, Bittaker was charged with 29 counts of rape, kidnapping, sodomy, and murder. And on March 24th, 1981, he was sentenced to death. And the judge, just in case his sentence was reverted, gave 199 years and four months. Bittaker died in prison in 2019, awaiting his execution, and Norris died in prison in 2020. and Spooky Spaces with Cassiopeia is a Pizza and Pigtails production with research, writing, and editing done by yours truly, Cassiopeia. You can find new episodes every Friday with bonus episodes coming out every other Tuesday. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at creepycases.spookyspaces. If you'd like to help support this podcast, you can subscribe directly through the anchor.fm page, which is creepycases-spookyspaces, or you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash creepycases-spookyspaces. Thank you.